overriding theme of this Congress is positivity and progress. The multitude of new opportunities open to us, together with the possibility of renewal in our legacy businesses, means that there has never been a better time to work in this industry, never been a more exciting time to be a publisher. and welcome to this special bonus episode of Media Voices. I'm Esther Thorpe, and our co-host Peter Houston is currently enjoying the sunshine in Portugal at the first in-person FIP Congress since 2019. So this episode, he's actually been cornering people at the conference to find out what they're hoping to learn, what it's like being back in the room, and how optimistic they are for the future of publishing. Peter, over to you. Hello, and welcome to the FIP Congress 2022. We're back. And it's absolutely beautiful. What an amazing spot here in Cascais in Portugal. Place is packed, genuinely. I know sometimes people say congresses and conferences are busy, but some of these sessions it is definitely standing room only. So I'm here trying to pick up some of the thoughts from publishing leaders on how they've come back into the real world. And first up this morning was James Hughes, Chief Executive of FIP, who little known fact, actually grew up in this beautiful place. James welcomed everyone off of Zoom and into the room with some thoughts on where the industry's been and where it might be going. Very hard to believe that it's been 937 days since the last in-person FIP Congress, which I think is a record, uh, certainly in the modern era. And of course, in the intervening period, we've lived through an event without precedent in modern human history. Pandemic came at a great cost in human lives, in our health, in higher taxation, in lost jobs and opportunities, and a temporary loss of our collective humanity. One of my favorite sayings throughout the pandemic is that human beings are social animals. Uh, the extended periods of confinement that we've all endured over the last two and a half years have not been natural. The pandemic may be over when we are immediately in the midst of the next crisis, provoked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If the 20th century was mankind's great leap, to use Neil Armstrong's phrase, then the 21st is becoming mankind's permanent crisis. From 9-11 to the global financial crisis, Covid, Brexit, Trump, the war in Ukraine and the potential resulting recession to follow, our recent history is marked by near-permanent volatility. The impact of this on our industry has been clear, and it's overlaid onto a period when the business models on which we relied for much of the last hundred years are shrinking in value and are yet to find their new normal. It is easy to be negative in such times as the combination of disruption and uncertainty make our professional lives increasingly difficult. But I'm here today to tell you that I don't share that negativity, that the overriding theme of this Congress is positivity and progress. The multitude of new opportunities open to us, together with the possibility of renewal in our legacy businesses, means that there has never been a better time to work in this industry, never been a more exciting time to be a publisher. And I use that word publisher deliberately. Too easily have we dismissed that which made our fortunes. For many years I've stood on stages like this and pretended that magazines were a thing of the past, that to be relevant I had to jettison a medium that was believed to be part of our collective past. 
I'm not prepared to do that anymore. <coughs> a key part of FIT's membership today are news businesses, and I will happily concede for most of them, they are now in the business of news rather than of newspapers. They are an important part of both FIT's and our collective industry's future as we explore these new business models. But for the rest of us, we are magazine businesses, or at least magazine media businesses, and it is a great mistake for us to abandon that heritage too quickly, particularly when the multitude of new business models enabled by the democratisation of the tools of production and distribution have, if we are all being honest with ourselves, yet to consistently deliver businesses of the same scale and profitability. I love magazines, and I suspect most of you love magazines too, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Let's celebrate that alongside our more recent achievements, rather than being ashamed of it. The conclusion is that for media businesses like ours, whether in news or magazine media or any other medium, we have an obligation to develop multiple revenue streams, to spread our risk across several big bets. And yes, the majority of those must be digital revenue streams. But digital transformation does not mean swapping dependency on one revenue stream for dependency on another. The underlying shift that we're seeing is a move from a predominantly indirect relationship with our audiences funded by advertising towards a direct relationship funded by direct interaction with our readers and consumers. Digital subscriptions and e-commerce, the two major revenue sources for the future of our industry, rely for their success on a world-class understanding of those audiences and in turn mean that we as media businesses are having to develop a host of new skills in data management, audience understanding, consumer marketing, and the relationship between content and commerce. <laughs> the multitude of sessions we have over the next two days will enable you to take examples of best practice back to your individual businesses, and in turn, develop your own companies further, pardon me. And in this is revealed FIP's second core purpose, sharing knowledge. Increasingly, our competition is not each other. Influencers, big tech, big brands, startups, all of these are trying to steal our lunch. It's only by working together as an industry, by collaborating as well as competing, that we can succeed. Now, all of this is impossible without building the right kind of organisation to take advantage of these new opportunities, and I'm delighted that we have with us this week Professor Lucy Kung, whose landmark study of media leadership, which is available via the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, should be compulsory reading for everyone in our industry. The future shape of our industry depends on having leaders who display the characteristics that Professor Kung highlights. High thinking, low ego, pushing power down, being a coach, not a boss, and most crucially of all, leading by example. I'm Lucy Kung. I wear a number of hats. I'm a senior visiting research fellow at the Reuters Institute at Oxford. So I research transformation and best practice. I work on the boards of media companies and I also consult leaders in media companies on strategy and organizational issues. So you've just given your presentation about how yeah. we get to growth. Yeah. Um, I love that idea that. The and I think I don't think I've heard people say it before. The idea that we're not going to be in a digital transition forever, which is good news, I think. So, that as a starting point, what's a sign that you're maybe not still in that 
digital transition? Or what's the first signs maybe that you come to the end of? I think once once the whole organisation gets the digital agenda, once the digital products are really front and centre of what the organisation's trying to do, once people are kind of talking the same language, once generally that kind of friction around transformation is starting to disappear. But obviously the clear thing is once you've got really solid, pretty reliable, plannable digital revenues coming in. So you've got a solid... Um, stream of funding coming in you know direct from audiences users readers or whatever and you've got some digital advertising revenue coming in as well and that's that feels planable that feels kind of stable so one of the things that i guess happened during the <coughs> pandemic was that things picked up speed yeah we got that acceleration yeah pandemic particularly in older cohorts yeah i mean i think what happened is um there were two things there was Overall, there was this kind of fantastic shift towards quality media, which I think was a real gift for quality media organisations. It was really clear the public, you know, when, when push comes to shove, when there's a crisis, they want quality news and information and entertainment. That was fantastic, and that was kind of unexpected. Um, I think the other thing we saw that is even the most conservative demographic groups, those older, loyal customers to the kind of legacy pro products, the, the print subscriptions, the linear channels, also went pretty digital pretty fast. And that was very significant because it was those, it was kind of loyalty and dependency on those groups that was slowing down digital transformation. Because you would hear in conversations, yeah, we can't really impoverish the offer for them. They're our most loyal customers. They're our most valuable customers. But suddenly, hey, presto, they're pretty digital too. So they're happy with streaming. They're happy FaceTiming with the family. They're on WhatsApp. They're happy shopping online. So, so basically, their behavior changed. And I think that is, that is one of the gifts in COVID that we saw. And I use that term very guardedly. But we, we saw that actually even the most, these conservative uh, consumer groups that were kind of anchoring us a little bit in the past, they moved as well. I think that gifts, gifts in it, obviously, an interest in modern pandemic, but yeah. it's that idea of every cloud having a silver lining. But that silver lining, do you think publishers, media companies are really making the best now of that silver lining? No, because I think probably they haven't acknowledged it as such. They haven't seen the, the kind of, um, and I really do this use this word very guardedly, but they haven't seen the kind of some of the hidden benefits. So yes, we had this growth in subscriptions in, in audiences. That was really clear. But I think one of the biggest challenges is this fact that it's unfrozen everything, that people are expecting things to be different. So pre-pandemic, when you worked with organisations, when I worked with organisations looking at big change, there was always this sense of, we know this is really important, but how are we going to sell this to people? Um, how are we going to make people understand? And the biggest thing in any change is actually unfreezing organisations, making people receptive to change. And it's very hard to do. But one of the things pandemic did is actually do that globally. So we're in this situation where people are coming back to work and expecting things to be different. And that, I really think, is a once-in-a-lifetime situation. And so organisations, their leaders, need to be really, really clear what, what, is, what is the shape of they want to build for the future and use this opportunity now where everything is plastic, things can be moulded, and really uh, not kind of drift back to business as it was, but really proactively lean into this and take this opportunity to create 
create the organisation, particularly the kind of social architecture, the values and the assumptions that they need to kind of inculcate really deep in the organisation. So if there was a couple of pieces of advice that you would be giving people to take advantage of this unfreezing, what would that be? I think the first, I think it really has to be kind of user-reader content centricity get very close get the whole organization very close to the core audience and really take the time to understand who they are and what they need from you or what would they would ideally want from you because the really subtle thing is in an, in any organization there's kind of hardwired assumptions about what our what our core readers want what people audiences really want from us and a lot of that doesn't actually apply anymore there have been really profound changes in in how consumers behave in what they want there's been really profound changes in what's available out there i mean from tiktok to streaming i think it's very very important to understand who our audiences are and also who else are, do, are doing things for them and what are they doing better than us and coming out of that, I mean, this is a bit technical, but you really, really need to know what you want to stand for to the outside world. It's prob you think it's, it's self-evident inside, but it's the outside world, it's probably not. So you've really got to focus not on building your internal identity, but also the external identity. And in that, being very clear, where are you really differentiating from everyone else competitively? And really lean into that, make that very clear. So work out what are the points of differentiation that really matter for your audiences, for your customers, for your readers, and then make those crystal clear. One of the things you talked about was the idea that the people with the deepest expertise in the organisation may actually be the youngest with the least experience. Yeah, I mean, the point there is there's been this really big decoupling of expertise and experience. It used to be the longer you'd been in the business... You know, from a learning psychology point of view, the more problems you had solved in a group, the better your networks, the more expertise you had, the more valuable you were. And that's, that was the basis for, you know, uh, those people with the greatest expertise being at the top. Because of the changes we've seen now, there's a lot of really, really critical expertise in very, very young heads in the organisation, in newer parts of the organisation, in the data functions, in the social teams, in the AI teams. And it's so important that those voices really get heard in the meetings. Um, so it's this decoupling of expertise and experience. And we've really just got to look for expertise and acknowledge that can be in, in surprising places. And also, you know, the, the younger, newer members of the, of the organization are much, much closer to newer markets, to markets, to uh, demographic groups that are being underserved. And if you want to kind of correct all of that, you've really got to access their expertise which demands a kind of different type of leadership. I mean, we focus traditionally so hard on really good leadership communication coming down, but actually leaders to make, need to make sure they've kind of built organisations where important messages can flow up to them as well. Just the last, last thing, really, and this is the most unfair question ever. Are you optimistic that people can actually... It's a horrible way of putting it, but can they take advantage of these COVID gains, COVID gifts? Can they actually take advantage and can we grow properly as a business, as an industry moving forward? Yes, I, I am actually optimistic. I mean, what we've seen coming out of COVID is the strong players have got amazingly strong and are now really powerful organisations. And actually, some of the ones... Um, who are really performing well, their problem is they're running too hot. They're burning people out not because of friction and frustration, it's just because 
the engine is running too well. So yes, I can. I think there are a few kind of magic moves. I think one magic move is really understanding leadership, making sure you've got really good leadership at every level of the organization. In the middle, it's about these kind of feedback skills and mentoring skills. And at the top, it's about this kind of listening, making sure you're hearing the messages you need to hear. And I think the other thing, the other kind of magic move is, is really getting this visceral understanding of who are you serving and what do they really want. Because if you can nail that, you will, you will basically become indispensable in their lives. But I think what we've got to understand is people's lives have changed really radically. And a lot of our structures are based on an old assumption about how people live and what people want from the media. And I think that, that evolution is really violent and we need, to, we need to really tap into that. I mean, we really need to understand... And it's a big thing, but how how news, information, entertainment travels on, on, on social networks. Really, really critical to understand because we're so out of this phase of if we build it, they will come. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, we might build it and it's perfect, but unless we understand how to distribute it and get it in front of people, it's, you know, it's not going to deliver what we wanted it to. I'm Jim Jack Fides. I'm VP of Licensing and Development for Fortune Media, publisher of the Fortune 500. You're here in Portugal. What's it like to be back at a real-world, real-life conference again? So I love it. I love the interaction with the people, seeing old friends, meeting new people, and I think that there's nothing like a personal interaction. So how's your job changed? What are you doing now? So previously I'd been doing a lot of BD work in the U.S. and during COVID I did a number of deals uh, internationally and then a number of digital business development deals in the U.S. In the last six months the company's asked me to look at developing our European business. We're very strong in the U.S. and strong in China and we want to be stronger in Europe. So that sounds positive but I'm assuming COVID had an impact on your business. COVID had an impact on probably every business. Um, I think we were very nimble and we adapted. Um, So our conference business obviously took a huge hit, but we were able to go online and it ended up being, you know, not the same by any means, but a very profitable piece of business. Did the licensing aspect take a hit? I think the underlying business took a hit, but we just worked with our partners to equal things out and and get everyone through the pandemic so here's here's the big million dollar question what do you think you'll learn as a business from covid and what do you think you'll take forward into the future i think flexibility is a big takeaway right so it, it covid made you really look at all of your assumptions from the commute to what do you really have to do to support someone and um I learned that I could do a deal via Zoom where I thought I'd have to do it locally and in person. Um, I still think negotiating face-to-face is better than via email or Zoom, um, but there's a lot that you can do in different ways, and I think that that was the big takeaway. Even although you can get on a plane and go and talk to people, do you think Zoom is still part of the start of the plan going forward? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was just able to Zoom into our town hall and uh, that's never going to go away. I can check in with people that I may not have a sizable business with that I I need to touch base with that maybe I go once a year instead of twice a year. Um, It's a good way to do an initial contact and a screening meeting. 
But I really think to do a substantial ongoing business, even, you know, just simple ad sales, you need to have personal conversations. So what's the plan in terms of expanding in Europe? What, what are you looking for? So we have really successful businesses in the U.S., digital conferences, branded syndication. So the first step is to sell those to European companies that want to reach the U.S. market. And we'll build our European versions of those businesses and maybe some brand new products. So I've been talking to a lot of CEOs. That's one of the good things about working for Fortune. We have an audience of CEOs, and some of them will talk to me, or their corporate comms people. So I'm trying to develop products that help them solve their problems or amplify what they're already doing. Um, and so that's that's the phase two. I've also put in a lot of sales reps in the markets because we need people to actually knock on doors and sell. Um, and we're right in the middle of it. I'm very optimistic. I'm still waiting for that really big proof of concept sale. But like I said, I'm optimistic it's going to so work. What sort of products are you looking at? Well, I mean, when I say products, I mean our digital, our dot-com, and our conference business and um, branded content. And so we will do versions of, say, Brainstorm Tech, which is one of our conferences in the U.S. Maybe we do a lead-up dinner or four or five in European capitals here. Should we develop our own conferences here? Absolutely. Can we do it right now? Probably not. And it would be better if we built the muscle to be able to get the audience and assemble the panels and really deliver a CEO-quality event, a fortune-quality event. So that's probably next year's project, and we'll develop versions of that. But you're confident that's coming back, the event industry? 100%. I mean, this conference is oversubscribed. Yeah. I, I think that you know people are hungry to meet. You have to network. You have to get that the the ideas that just happen, right? Hello, I'm Katie Vanek Smith. I am co-founder of Tortoise Media, and I do it for the members. You've done a lot of work expanding your podcast output. Do you think there's lessons that you can learn from the podcasts that you can take into other areas of your business? So engagement, I would say intimacy engagement but more importantly the lovely thing about podcasting is it's reminded us what real time means so when you think about digital media you know people get excited about people spending two minutes on their website I mean that's clickbait that's rubbish that's bollocks you know you know our podcasts are 40 minutes in length and we get an 88% listen through that's pop that's you know like that's like that's proper time that's is there anything in that for the other content you do? Is there any learnings from that that you can take to the other content? Well, I think it's about being very clear about different channels and the role of that product in your customers' lives. So, for example, it's not just amazing time spent with the podcast, which is phenomenal, but taking that same focus and say, OK, I'll sense make a newsletter. Yeah really how do we make that the best newsletter but only do one every day make it the daily habit we've taken our open rates up to over 40 percent on a daily basis and in a month over 75 percent of members will open and read those newsletters and that's been for us a sort of real focus and on our thinkings obviously you know the big challenge there has been about making sure we're programming joy alongside some of the news because the news isn't very kind of rough yeah. for everyone um, so we've needed to program a bit more joy in. Is that another thing you think that we've learned from this whole thing is that 
it doesn't need to be all serious all the time. Because you guys are set up as, you know, slow journalism, but it's serious journalism. Yeah, I mean, look, we talk about spinach and cheesecake. All right. There's been a lot of spinach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we all need a bit of cheesecake. So it's not every day, you know, but um, it really matters to us. And I think this is where being back in person takes you to a really interesting place. Because when you're back in person, the joy of just being with people, it's so human, it feels great. And I think that is sort of spilling over into the newsroom and the general culture again. But, you know, for me... That's the biggest joy of, you know, the back in person. It's that energy and it just brings a different spirit. I'm Johnny Caldor. I am the co-founder of PugPig and we're a publishing platform. We power websites and apps for news media, uh, magazine publishers like Condé Nast and Hearst. Uh, the independent. Yeah. I, it feels like there's a lot of energy in the room, doesn't it? Do you think that's because people are just glad to be back in the real world with people that they know, people maybe they're just meeting? Or do you think there's an optimism about where the business might be going? I think it's a mix of the two. I mean, I, I think, look, there's a bunch of people here who know each other quite well and they see each other at the Congress every two years. Mm-hmm. And they've been kind of waiting for this. So I'd say it's as much that as anything. It's just, you know, meeting old friends and, and having those conversations you've been dying to, to have. So those conversations, what are people talking about? What, where are they looking for, I don't know, growth or new business? Or? I mean, what, what we're seeing, I don't, and I don't know if this is reflected at the conference right now, but what we're seeing is so many people getting super excited about subscriber revenue and, and, and membership, you know, that, that whole kind of membership proposition. You've talked to Katie earlier today. Oh, actually, so Katie reminds me, the audio aspect of publishing which I know it's kind of everyone's going on about audio at the moment but I have very good anecdotal evidence to show that publishers are really getting excited by this right so we launched the independent or relaunched the independent app what four weeks ago every single story has an audio version we relaunched new new scientist about six weeks ago every single story has an audio version it's like it's jam-packed into everything we do now so and and i'm hearing that i don't know if this is like a self-fulfilling prophecy but everywhere i go everyone's still super excited about audio and it's not just podcasts weirdly it's podcasts and audio versions of exactly audio versions of articles and that sort of thing so is it fair to say as you sat here in the sunshine with a beer not that far from you is it fair to say you're optimistic about where we're at where we're going yeah i'm so optimistic we we've we've been on a kind of 11 year journey which started three years of you know, in 2011, massive optimism about the future of digital media, or four years, and then followed by four years of, oh shit, this is not, this yeah. is not quite what we were hoping for. And I have to say, the last three years has been remarkable. And and I think again, for me, you know, we operate in quite a niche, don't we? So our company is all about, well, not all about, but very focused on apps, which is all about your most loyal, paying, engaged customers, and that. I think that's something that everybody's getting excited about right now. So for us, it's, yeah, good times. 
My name is Rachel Arthur. I am the founder of Boom Saloon, so I suppose you could say I do that for myself. However, I would say I do it for our global community. Ah, interesting. That's what Katie Vanek-Smith says. Is it? Well, that makes me very pleased because I am a massive fan of their model. You're in good company. So why are you here? Why are you in Kashkai? I am here having just spoken at the FIP Congress about our journey through digital transformation and having undertaken a couple of courses with the FT Strategies team and the Google News Initiative Network as well. So that's a, that's a week, that's a pretty intense programme, right? Massively intense. So it's like a week's programme that you're working with Google guys, FT guys, and they look specifically at your business? Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, huge learnings, hugely, hugely valuable. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say to anyone who's thinking of undertaking it, definitely book it into your diary in advance and set aside the time to do it well because it really is an invaluable opportunity. So... Okay, I've got one of the things we're trying to get out of this podcast is Mm -hmm. the idea of what's different now than two years ago when we went into the pandemic. Mm. Now, I wonder, would that course have taken place the way it did if it hadn't been for the pandemic? No, I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb and say no. Also, from chatting with Lisa from FT Strategies earlier, she said that they've already started doing face-to-face again. And the benefits of that, I mean, we don't need to argue over that. They are tenfold, at least. Um, So, in terms of delivery, no. I also think... The landscape has and is continuously changing so much. I think that needs to be a massive part of the conversation. Um, I was listening to Nick Newman's Reuters report, um, and he was touching on the fact that 60% of the publishers they surveyed turned a profit during the pandemic, which is largely due to digital subs and everyone being stuck at home and this need for information about what on earth is going on in the world. Um, so I think that that definitely played a major factor. So what did it do to your business? I think it uh, highlighted a lot of things that we were on the cusp of either implementing or knowing. Um, and I guess gave us the confidence to take those forward um so we have bounced around the idea of subscriptions in their kind of traditional state for a number of years but we knew that they didn't work for us um but actually picking apart what a membership versus a subscription could be um that really opened the doors to what we could offer and how that could differentiate from what we potentially would have considered or what would have felt like it made more sense previously. Um, So yeah, I think definitely highlighting the opportunities and clarifying the potential for us to move into those spaces. So are you in the process of developing that membership model? We've actually launched. Um, So one of the things that I touched on in my talk is the difference in working in print versus digital and when you're working digitally this uh this ability to test and hypothesize and change and develop as you go directly in relation to feedback from your audience and what you know they they want and need um and that has definitely been the case for our membership model i am not in any way ashamed to say that we did not get it right initially (laughs) when we were going through those you know those experimental stages um so we're only a couple of months in and it's already changed massively but i actually feel weirdly comfortable and confident with that because i know that those changes are directly off the back of our audience's wants and needs i can 
open up the email from someone which says it shouldn't be like this it should be like that and look at the fact that it was like this previously we got that email and you know I'm not saying it's the case of we get one email and rework everything Um, but it is quite nice to directly be able to point to feedback from the audience and show how that has shaped the offering so you guys you're a small business by any description yeah the guys on that aren't necessarily, and you're talking about the FT and you're talking about Google. Yeah. How do you take those learnings and apply that to a small business? Mm, that's a really great question. And actually, if I'm honest, I, I felt quite daunted learning from those guys. And what was so great in particular from the FT strategy side of things, because we worked very closely with them in particular throughout both weeks, was that they really took the time to learn and understand our model and the scale and size and, and evolution of our model as well. Um, so that, I suppose, potentially enabled them to tailor some of the learnings to a much smaller team. There was definitely a point initially when I felt quite daunted and almost a bit uncertain of if the learnings would translate. You know, if they were to turn to us and say, well, this problem will be solved by giving all of your reams of data to your data team, yeah. then that never would have worked. Um, but luckily, that's that's not how it ended up being. Um, and I also think that aside, there's a lot of learnings that cut both ways, regardless of whether they're translated or not. So I think there's a lot that small publishers can learn from the big guys. And equally, I think there's a fair amount that the big guys can learn from the smaller guys. Yeah, it's not not talked about nearly enough. Um, and I really... What should the big guys be looking at from the small guys? I think the agility, the nimbleness, um, the... I mean, dare I say it, and this obviously depends on the publication, but sometimes the ballsiness. And, you know, that's obviously much easier to do when you have five salaries to worry about versus 5,000. But I think, you know, if you have three people to sign something off versus 30 departments, then obviously it's going to be an easier task to fulfill. Um, But, yeah, I think that's that's a big learning, and it's, it's similar to, you know, turning a cruise ship versus a dinghy isn't it um but i definitely think those learnings do absolutely cut both ways so you've met these guys i'm assuming for the first time in real life Mm. it's been good it has been so good good. Um, yeah it's been great i think i have a terrible habit of i i almost get a bit starstruck with people that I've had three Zoom calls with um, and I do have a terrible habit of running up and just saying, oh my goodness, it's you, hi! And realising actually they very often don't know who I am. Well, because they're only used to seeing one little square on their yeah. head. And they go, oh my God, you've got legs! I oh. know, you're a real person. Um, but no, it has been really, truly wonderful to meet people in person again um, and just be able to bounce off each other and interact. Yeah, yeah it's really great. In a recent interview, the CEO of a major publishing company said, we are no longer a magazine business. They rightly listed all the ways in which this business reaches its audience, not only print, but also a multitude of digital and in-person channels. Their comments highlight what I believe is an important question, one that goes to the heart of our business. If we are not magazine businesses, then what are we? 
Can we provide a clear, concise definition of the nature of our purpose, one that is as clear a shortcut to understand what we do as the phrase a magazine company was? As you listen to our fantastic programme of speakers over the next few days, I would ask you to think on this point, and I would love to hear your views over the course of the event. So we made it to the end of the day. Uh, everyone is now sat having a nice drink outside. And I have to say, it is definitely worth being off a of Zoom and back in the room. The FIP Congress has been excellent. Sessions have been great. And I think in-person events may not be the be-all and end-all anymore, but there's definitely a future there. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm super jealous right now. It's uh, pretty wet and chilly here in England. It sounds like you're having a brilliant time now, and no doubt there'll be plenty of learnings to share as the week goes on. Media Voices will be back on Monday with our regular news roundup and guest interview. If you want to hear more from us, you can find our podcasts on all good podcast apps by searching for Media Voices, or you can see more of our work on our website, voices.media. Until next week, when I'll be joined by Chris and Peter, if he decides to come back, goodbye. <laughs>